Welcome to Public Intellectual. If you enjoy this show, you could consider supporting it financially at patreon.com slash publicintellectual. We have bonus episodes and other things up there for our supporters. The election of Donald Trump was very upsetting, and people chose to express that with hyperbole. Everything was suddenly hashtag resistance. Everyone was pretending they were a Nazi puncher. Everything was the apocalypse and the worst thing that had ever happened. It all fit in very well with this cartoonish version of morality and evil we have in America, where everyone is either a superhero or a supervillain. And suddenly, this television show, The Handmaid's Tale, was not just a television show made to entertain you and to sell you things. It was a vitally important examination of Trump's America. You had to watch it to understand what was going on. People talked about it as if it were a documentary. There were so many breathless think pieces about it. It was easy to forget that the last time people were excitedly talking about this story, the Margaret Atwood novel it was based on, it was being used to justify the invasion and occupation of Afghanistan to liberate their women. By the way, if you, like myself, hate this Atwood novel and the whole white woman dystopia of helplessness and victimhood genre, a decent alternative is Sarah Hall's Daughters of the North, but more about that in the show notes on the Patreon page. Indiana Saracen wrote a paper on the fashionable nature of The Handmaid's Tale in a paper called Red, White, and Black, The Handmaid's Tale as Aesthetic Fantasy. And so I invited her back as our first repeat guest to talk about why this story is having such an effect on our culture. here to talk about The Handmaid's Tale, but I feel like I should say that uh, I did not finish watching the show. Um, I did read the book when I was around 20, uh, because it's one of those those books that you, you're supposed to read when you're a 20-year-old um, white woman in, in the United States of America. Um, and I hated it. I hated it at the time, and I don't think I understood why I didn't like it until... Um, the TV show happened um, and all the writing about the TV show about how uh, Gilead is, uh, is exactly like Trump's America. Uh, <laughs> all those opinion pieces from um, totally upper middle-class white women in New York city and Los Angeles writing these pieces. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So um, what made you interested in in writing about it in the first place, or what did you find interesting about about the show slash book? Um, so I'd also read the book a while ago. Again, I guess out of a sense of you know some kind of obligation. You're a feminist, like you'll love this book, um, and and also didn't really love it. Um, I think for me, part of it is that I study science fiction and feminist theory. Um, those are sort of my I guess like two of my main fields and um, you know, this is the most famous feminist science fiction novel. Um, and so this is like, this is what initially drew me to it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think when the TV show came out, of course it was like this like super zeitgeisty thing that, you know, everyone wanted to be a commentary on our times and in multiple ways, like not just as this sort of like mirror, supposed mirror of Trump's America, but also, you know, because it encapsulates so many of the issues and anxieties of the present, um, you know, including issues around race. And there was this very like clumsy attempt to solve the um, way that race is dealt with in the book and to solve the issue of the total underrepresentation of people of color in um, mainstream television. But, you know, the solution that was then executed very poorly um, and, and, and contributed to the TV show ending up even more contrived um, than it otherwise would have been. 
Um, I mean, I think that there were some aspects of the show that I liked. Um, and I think in some ways that there was like a manipulation of emotion that I, I found kind of amazing. Like I really loved the use of music in it. (laughs) Um, but yeah, that's, that's sort of what drew me to it. And then what also, I guess, conjured my hypercritical lens. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's, it's not just a TV show. It's now, um, it's women show up in those outfits to protest now. Um, and now fashion, um, are you know are doing uh clothing inspired by uh the handmaid's tale the the sort of iconic red robes and and so on and so forth so it's it's not just um a television show in the sense of we're all aware that this is entertainment and so on and so forth it's leaked out in in other ways of we're supposed to think of this as as reality in, in some way yeah, I mean, it's definitely like a, a, a pop culture phenomenon that's, um, yeah, become this shared object in a way that I feel is very related to social media and the kind of way in which particularly our visual experience and our visual cues and reference are now, you know, very tied to how, um, you know, how those things are spread through social media. So I think, yeah, the the red dress is a great example of this, the fact that, you know, there were, I I don't think anyone could have missed loads of Handmaid's Tale costumes at Halloween. I mean, that also is a kind of interesting phenomenon. Like now you don't just like dress up for Halloween and go to the party. You also like share your costume on social media. So you can like recognize these trends and like, I guess, what sort of symbols are circulating in the public imagination or something. Um, and yeah, I mean, like, as you know, I wrote about, um, the fashion label Vaqueras, um, uh, the collection they did, which was inspired by The Handmaid's Tale, which to some degree I actually found very interesting. Um, you know, I think that there are things that have sort of, um, uh, arisen from, from this TV show, which in itself is, is not super interesting, but there are these other kind of, you know, conversations and, um, and, sort of like visual um what's what I'm looking for like there's a kind of another layer of visual symbolism that has emerged out of it which I think is 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 pretty interesting in itself even if the original object is perhaps not particularly complex or not particularly incisive you write about in the in this piece about um the handmaid's tale about the aesthetic of suffering and the fantasy of, of dystopia um Mm. And certainly that's a problem with a segment of the left that for years has sort of um, so run out of ideas of how the world might be better that now we just sort of, um, you know, present dystopia visions of the end of the world to each other and sort of wank off to them in the sense of like, well, <laughs> the world is ending. We tried. We tried. <laughs> yeah. We tried to warn everybody, but now now it's the road or whatever the fuck. Um, um, so how does that fit in with the handmaid's tale as far as like getting off a little bit on this, this vision of, uh, the subjected, uh, or subjugated, uh, woman, um, in a, in this religious society? Yeah. So I think, um, I mean, people are very obsessed with dystopia and I mean, I think people people from across the political spectrum um you know the constant invocation of nazism or the ussr or you know whatever or imagined dystopias like you mentioned um you know are evidence of this and i think that there's this presumption that we have a straightforward relationship to dystopia which is that we dread it and we fear it and we say thank god this isn't us um but I think that there, are, there, there is a lot of, I mean, you know, I'm by far not the first person to point that out, but the line between utopia and dystopia is, is sort of non-existent. Like the reality is that one person's dystopia is another person's utopia, right? And I also think that within the framework of a dystopia, something that is, I guess, 
maybe widely considered to be a dystopia like The Handmaid's Tale um, contains within it these pleasurable things. Um, I think there's something within the human psyche that gets off on the idea of living in a society where there are very, very, very strict rules and very strict roles that we're supposed to perform. I think this is particularly true now when we've moved into this space where it feels like categories of identity and gender roles and racial roles and all of these things have, have been sort of thrown up in a, in a very, um, in, in a very sudden and and dramatic and chaotic way. And, you know, you get, you see this in people's nostalgia for the fifties um, or whatever, this kind of thing. There's, this sense, I think, of you imagine yourself or, you know, this constant, this obsession with asking, oh, if I lived under the Nazi regime, like, what would I do? Like, there's this weird <laughs> role play that people love to engage in. Like, what would it be like? You know, of course, like video games are a huge example of this. But so, you know, science fiction also plays with it a lot. And I think then particularly in in the case of white women, you know, this is like, it's ridiculous that it's taboo to say, but feminism, you know, mainstream feminism has made it such like, it's taboo to say that there are fantasies circulating about white women's victimhood and violence being enacted on white women. And I don't mean that in terms of like, you know, male sadistic fantasies, although that's certainly part of this. But I mean, kind of in general and among a liberal feminist identified population, um, you know, there's something to watch The Handmaid's Tale and and witness that. There's something very comforting about the notion of this kind of submerged and widespread violence about women women really being literalized, which I think, you know, people really latch on to. Um, but of course, what they forget is that these fantasies have a really long history. Um, they have been used and continue to be used to prop up the carceral state, to criminalize black and brown men. Um, and they also, you know, perpetuate these ideas about white women as innocent and non-complicit in white supremacy and in violence. You know, I just feel like it's this kind of massive, massive propaganda campaign that white women are not perceived as violent. Um, when, the, I mean, particularly, yeah, I mean, in, in the American case, I don't know, more so there than anywhere else, probably, you know, this is true everywhere, but white women are, are, are deep, are very violent, um, particularly in a racial context, but also in general, like there are many, many, many ways in which, uh, white women's violence manifests. Um, and I think, you know, even though there are, you know, there's Serena Joy in The Handmaid's Tale, like there's, and there's um, uh, Aunt Lydia, who I who I recently read, I can't remember who was writing this, but someone pointed out that she's this very kind of like masculine, dikey seeming figure, which is something I hadn't noticed before. And then that, that immediately made a lot of sense um, that, you know, these, these, these white women, like they're sort of being placed in the role of being the perpetrators of violence, apart from they're not at all, like, the the violence is always coming from masculinity somehow, whether that's through the figure of the commander who's really kind of controlling Serena Joy's life and really were actually made to feel sorry for Serena Joy or through the masculinity of Aunt Lydia, who, you know, is this sort of like butch lesbian archetype, you know, white women get to remain innocent within this show. Right. And the only sort of, um, uh, framework for the violence of the of the white women in the show is that is the religious belief right so they're christian um and there there is something about the um fear or dehumanization or something of um uh sort of liberal white women have toward um you know, I'm from Kansas. It's a red state. This idea of religion, um, of a religious person, a religious woman um, being inherently misguided and uh, stupid and sort of everything that's wrong with America and that kind of stuff. Like to me, it sort of fit in that framework of, uh, uh, well, if we're going to dehumanize anybody, um, it'll be, uh, if we're going to point the finger at anybody within our own gender, it will be sort of 
the religious uh, right in the the midwestern section of of, um, of the United States. That's how sort of Aunt Lydia came off to me is like sort of this sort of you know like big Nebraska woman. Yeah. Um, so I sort of saw, saw it less as a, a sort of lesbian thing and more of like a midwestern um, you yeah. know lar- larger uh, figure. Um, yeah, certainly drained of all of her sort of like feminine appeal, you know, from one of these ways or another. Yeah, I mean, I think when I wrote about this, what I was something I was trying to get at as well is the the way that there's maybe, you know, white liberals in the US, uh, you know, love to think that in demonizing the Christian right, they, are, you know, they're still remaining innocent of, um, you know, the Islamophobia that the Christian right in the U.S. is currently perpetrating. But I do think this like suspicion of religious women um, is, you know, it's kind of part and parcel of the same thing. This idea that like, you know, whether it's Muslim women or Christian women, like they're complicit in these structures of domination and they're kind of responsible for their own subjugation. Um, and yeah, I also think, particularly with, you know, returning to the case of fashion, like I think, you know, there's this moment of interest in the relationship between uh, like fashion and religion. So like the metal theme is um, religious clothing. And, you know, there's been something that's like been described as the modest turn in fashion, like suddenly everyone's hemlines are and, and skirts are like to the ground, which I think is so interesting in a moment of demonization of religious women, whether that's Muslim women or Christian women in the kind of American cultural imagination that, and, and so much of that demonization, particularly of Muslim women focuses on the way they dress mm-hmm. and on the veil. And now, you know, now in fashion, this is, this is everywhere. You have this, this kind of turn towards modest clothing, um, which I think is also, I mean, maybe this is a separate point, but I think there's also a way in which, there's a desire, I mean, this is part of the dystopian desire, right? There's a desire for uniform, there's a desire for your clothes to mean something beyond just, like, their certain kind of, like, signification within capitalism, or, like, as, you know, we've, we've moved through all of these different stages of wanting our clothes to, like, betray a loyalty to a certain brand, to the kind, then through this kind of, like, non-branding thing, then through, like, so many different things and now now we're at a point where I feel like people there is this kind of like spiritual hunger for for appearance and clothing to express like a some sort of like yeah something that's more meaningful beyond just this capitalist matrix right because it was so uh you know I remember part of the third wave of feminism was so much about appearance so much about how you present yeah. yourself. Um, and then there seemed to be an exhaustion of that. Like, do I really have to think about how my, um, you know, T-shirt, what it, what is it broadcasting about me and that sort of thing. And, and so the, then the desire for, um, yeah, for a uniform, for, um, you know, the sort of uh, fear of freedom <laughs> uh, thing. Yeah. Of like, if you're sort of like wandering around without any sort of context. Um it's it's completely exhausting, and so the the desire for some sort of totalitarian um, experience at least that bestows some kind of meaning and um, uh, orientation to your to your existence. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so we were sort of talking about this in in the last podcast that I recorded uh, with John Viganay. Um, but basically about how so much of um, Western literature of uh, the 20th century, particularly post-war literature, is about um, positing the the narrator or the reader as uh, the victim. Um, And that there is so little willingness in the cultural imagination to even begin to think of yourself as maybe the oppressor, (laughs) right? And so you see this in, I think like 98% of feminist literature is a list of um, uh, ways in which the culture is against you or things that men have done to you or, you know, 
in the kind of trying to awaken a political consciousness, but what it really, I think, does is like pins you down as um, the victim of the sort of larger society and not understanding your complicitness in these systems and how you use them against other people and so on. And I see The Handmaid's Tales being absolutely a part of that um, and hence its popularity because it fits so well within how we like to think of ourselves as women, as um, Americans, as, as anything really. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's totally true. And, you know, another way in which The Handmaid's Tale is very timely because, you know, we're in a national, I don't know why I said we, I'm not actually in the US, <laughs> still feel this kind of attachment and investment. Um, you know, there's a, in the US, there's a, a kind of national moment of, um, you know, the uh, refusal to acknowledge, particularly on the part, you know, on the part of white people that they are deeply, deeply, deeply complicit in the current regime. You know, you have all of these people self-styling as the so-called resistance. Mm -hmm. Um, when in fact, you know, they're obviously nothing of the sort. Um, and of course, you know, even the, you know, regardless of the fact that the majority of white people voted for Trump, but, you know, even the people who, you know, proudly went off and voted for Hillary Clinton and indulged their fantasies of having this female leader and so on and so on, you know, were in that moment voting for the subjugation of women, you know, in, and men and whoever in all parts of the world. Um, and I think it's interesting because this, this is part, like, this issue seems to be really at the heart of, like, the pushback um both on the right, but I also think from some people on the left um, of, uh, you know, privilege discourse and this kind of thing. I was actually like speaking to my step granddad about this the other day and he he was saying, you know, I don't I, I don't think that I, I don't like it when people talk about privilege. Like, I, I don't think this is a useful way to talk about things. Um and I was saying, well, OK, one reason why people push back against this is because they think that, you know, that they're invested in meritocracy and they want to believe that what they have, they've earned. And he said, oh, I, well, of course, I don't believe that. I understand that, you know, resources and powers and un un unevenly distributed. And then I think I think then we got to the heart of his issue, which was that. I was like, you know, like to say that you're privileged, like doesn't mean that you're wrong or that you're bad. It's just a fact, like it's just a statement of fact about you. And everyone, pretty much everyone um, has some privilege over other people and less privilege than anyone else. I mean, it's like such a like, mundane, obvious statement. And yeah, I think this idea has been totally like, kind of warped in a way. Um you know, such that there's this continuous, like, refusal and denial of, you know, one's own complicity and privilege and, and this kind of thing. And at the moment, I don't really see a way, like, I see the possibility of a way out, but I don't really see anyone discussing, discussing these things in relation to themselves, you know, discussing, their their own complicity and, and their own power. And this is why for me, I find it really important. Like, I, like I, you know, my work is so deeply indebted to black studies and black feminism. Um, but I do think there's a place that I have as a white woman to be essentially like, which I am obsessed with like white women's crimes historically and, and, and in the present. And, you know, be speaking from this point of saying like, I think, you know, I, I want to just sort of transform or help to transform the image of white women in order to acknowledge our complicity in violence and and our investment in white supremacy and uh, the way we benefit from white supremacy and all these things, because people are not speaking from that subject position. Like the work is being done, but th there are way, 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 way too few examples of people, you know, what's the phrase, owning that privilege? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, or if, they, if, they're, if they're talking about this, it's in this very self-serving way of positioning themselves as some sort of professional ally, right? Of, <laughs> um, 
Or even today, I was reading some new fucking apology by a man accused of sexual assault and coercion. And his, uh, the whole thing was just this horror show of um, using all the right language um, without any meaning behind it. I was just like, oh, now I understand that because of my position as a, as a man and as a, you know, a, someone with, with a small level of fame, then I have a certain amount of privilege that I've been misusing and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, this sounds so insincere. <laughs> like it sounds terrifying almost because it's the, um, you know, the predator taking up the language of, of the prey. Um, mm. And I don't know how to, I don't know if that's maybe just me being cynical, but I, I don't think that it is. Um, but it does seem like the the sort of conversation around the word privilege got stuck somewhere. And, um, but also part of the reason that it got stuck wasn't just because the, the language was sort of inadequate, but because we're so reluctant to look at our, to actually look at ourselves in our position and, and see, um, you know, how we are uh, in some ways, in many ways, um, propping up a system of oppression because it works for us. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it's interesting what you're saying about language. I I do think, like, I don't know what else to call it, but, like, social justice language has kind of evolved um, in such a way that it can – it's now so often used to signify absolutely nothing. Like, you know, all of these – and I think there's a related issue between this and the kind of language policing that happens where, and this, I think an issue that I found with like a lot of activist spaces being like really classist, because even though they may be like a self styling as like queer spaces or, you know, anti-racist spaces or like whatever. Um, in fact, like if you're not using a certain language that essentially you learn in college, like in the U S mm-hmm. in these spaces, like you're then, you know, you're then perceived as a perpetrator of domination and violence, which is like so stupid and so fucked up. And in the reverse, you have people, you know, whose publicity people are able to write these statements and like check off all the right words. And yet the statement is like totally devoid of of meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I mean, the thing that annoys me more about this is that this is also like intellectually a very fruitful field. Like I, I'm. Uh, this is when I wrote to you about David Graeber's article about his mother, like, and about, you know, his kind of evolving, very slowly evolving awareness of, um, you know, how widespread rape and other forms of, uh, sexual harassment and assault are. You know, I would have loved to know what was actually going on in his mind for all those years where he didn't believe it. Like, I, this is such, I I feel such uncharted territory in terms of like how we understand what is actually going on in the minds of men, you know, who are deeply intelligent and deeply committed to justice and yet who totally refuse to believe that for which there is so much evidence. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think this is like, it's very interesting and there are so many different ways this could play out. Um, But instead, we get this kind of like weak, uh, slightly apologetic, very self-serving, banal, boring and unhelpful discourse of, you know, people performing their allyship or performing these weak apologies and so on and so on. And it doesn't actually, you know, enrich our understanding of these things at all. And everybody's also sort of making like the same joke on Twitter of just like, oh, we just need to put everything, women in charge of everything. I was like, I'm not going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. Um, Yeah, and part of that is the, um, right, in the context of The Handmaid's Tale, it's, it's this, it's the inability of us to kind of empathize um, unless we identify with um, whoever's being oppressed. Like, unless we can sort of picture ourselves in the role of, in the handmaid's tale of like sex slave. Um, and so we, so of course you have to cast, um, a pretty white woman in that role. Um, then we kind of, we're just not interested. Yeah, definitely. 
And and empathy is also, I mean, as I was saying before, like empathy is distributed in certain ways. Like it's we're we're encouraged to feel a lot of empathy for Serena Joy, who, you know, is ultimately cast as just as much a victim of patriarchy, even though she then makes some bad choices. But, you know, then she's kind of stuck in her position. I mean, I think that it strikes me like that situation seems to imply that there's an extent to which like, I don't know, it felt very like leveling to me, this notion. I mean, it's a very particular version of sort of like liberal capitalist, like white feminism that, well, we're all, we're all, um, you know, oppressed as women and like whether we're the commander's wife or a handmaid or whatever, like, you know, and there are these moments, there are these like gestures towards, you know, when the, this new handmaid comes and says to Alfred slash June, you know, that she's grateful that the that Gilead now exists, that this regime exists because before she was a drug addict and she was impoverished and whatever. And that it, it was like such a crude and stupid gesture to what is actually a really interesting thing. Right. Which was it. there was this moment where it's like suddenly there was like this rupture and this very intense kind of like almost didactic, you know, narrative um, where suddenly the central character, this kind of like privileged, you know, well-educated, fairly wealthy white woman was made to confront the fact that she before had been complicit in a regime, you know, in a world system that, was even more oppressive to many people than the one she's currently in. But it just died immediately and she never had to confront it again. Um, and she then was immediately kind of reinstigated as the, as the hero. Um, which is just so, it, it was such a shame. Um, I mean, not that I necessarily expected more from the show, but, um, yeah, it was this thing. It was like the, the, the show obviously did not worry at all that the audience would suddenly realized that what this other handmaids was saying was right and choose to identify with her because they made sure to make her an abject enough figure. I mean, it was, it was actually kind of comical. She says something like, I don't know if you recall, but you know, she says like that she was like giving blowjobs behind a dumpster for drugs or something like truly like a, a just a, like, you know, a total stereotype which completely reduced her humanity and made the point that she was saying, which is so deeply important, it just sort of it went up in smoke. It kind of reminds me of um, the Holocaust museums, particularly in, uh, in Central Europe, um, where the point is to try to, they're, that, they're now like these really sort of like sensory experiences where you're, you're, you're shoved in, cattle cars and, and, and so on, um, and dehumanized in the way that Jews were dehumanized um, in, in a way to make you identify with, um, with the victims of, of the Holocaust. Um, and there's like this, uh, the, ha- the, the House of Terror or something in Budapest where like kind of the last room is just pictures of people who um, turned other people in and there's no context provided. It's just like this wall of shame, right? So you're supposed to look at these people and see evil or whatever. (laughs) But I'm just thinking like, wouldn't it be more useful politically, culturally, et cetera, um, for us to identify instead with the Nazis, like to be, to try to make you understand how, evil creeps up and how you find yourself doing evil things um and there's just no sort of there's no place for that in our culture of helping us understand that this is we're always sort of positioning ourselves as the victim and we're never positioning ourselves as you know as the nazis (laughs) (laughs) i think that's true to some extent although i don't know i do think that there are ways in which I mean, again, going back to this kind of utopia, dystopia dialectic, I think in all of these moments at, at which we're encouraged to fantasize ourselves, to fantasize about ourselves as the, the victims of dystopia, there's also an element in which we're fantasizing to some degree as the 
aggressor as well as the perpetrator. But I think the issue is that it's this constant displacement it, onto this other regime, right? Like it's, um, you know, and that's why, you know, for example, everyone loves comparing Trump and his supporters to Nazis, um, you know, where constant, you know, on the right, people are constantly calling everyone on the left, like, you know, Stalinists or whatever. Like it's, it's, I think the problem is, I mean, of course the problem is that we're always encouraged to perceive ourselves the victims and not the perpetrators to some extent, but it's also this thing of like, this othering of of the dystopian world when in fact i I mean it seems like the trickiest thing is to identify the way in which the 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 question what would you do if you lived under the nazi regime is a non-question because it's just what are you doing right now well in the case of most people nothing really just being completely complicit in 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 a society that benefits them and, you know, severely oppresses other people. Right. I mean, it kind of reminds me of, um, of uh, there was this interview with Max Brooks, who wrote World War Z. Um, so the big, big zombie book, and, and then it was turned into this film, and it's just like, you know, like these faceless hordes of, um, of zombies trying to kill our super handsome protagonist or whatever. Um, and he gave this interview that I found shocking and it was in the New York times and nobody else, I guess, uh, found it shocking, uh, where he said that he was inspired about the zombie apocalypse because he grew up in the AIDS crisis and he saw AIDS patients as, um, this looming threat that there, there was like an AIDS patient waiting behind every corner, um, going to trying to infect him and this is like a you know like a rich a heterosexual man um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah no it, it's the same kind of thing of like positioning yourself as as the um the sort of wealthy person as somehow uh the victim of the aids crisis even yeah, totally, totally. These like terrible things are just imagined to sort of happen. And we're sort of all the, co- I mean, within this kind of way of thinking, we're all the collective victims of something like AIDS, if that makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. do, you, do you know what I mean? It's like people talk about it as if it's like an earthquake that the whole world has suffered. And I think, you know, the same thing with um, Nazism and, and, even yeah i don't know like even slavery as well in the u.s it's like oh it's this terrible thing that happened in our country and it's like but well but how did it happen (laughs) like who was actually doing this um yeah it's yeah it's interesting there's a there was a quote i wanted to make sure i mentioned during this conversation um which was the fact that you were talking about the person who uh wrote uh what was the um, reminded me of this, um, which was at Bruce Miller, who's the uh, executive producer and writer of The Handmaid's Tale, when he was confronted about the kind of post-racial casting choices, I think he got very flustered and annoyed because he thought he was going to garner a lot of praise for this decision and then, like, you know, turned around and found himself being accused of racism. And he said, what's the difference between making a show about racists and making a racist show? And I mean, I think like in some ways this question like betrays just the kind of like immense stupidity about race that that, you know, is sort of widespread in our cultural moment. Mm-hmm. Um, this sense, you know, that that's that, that I think that it basically started off as a liberal idea. Now the right have really co-opted it, which is like, oh, you're the real racist for mentioning race. Do you know what I mean? Like I don't see race, so I can't be racist like you're the real racist. But I was kind of playing around with the idea in my mind and decide to like switch out the term racist for fascist. So like, what's the difference between making a show about fascists and making a fascist show? And I think that is actually way more interesting because part of the, it, like, I can't remember if I was telling you about this, but I, in watching like YouTube videos of The Handmaid's Tale, I would sometimes scroll down and this happened too uh, with The Man in the High Castle, which is also something I've been writing about. Where, you know, I would scroll down to these comments and see, you know, self-identified members of the far right talking about the show, 
as a kind of utopian scheme and and saying like oh like this is good but it doesn't go far enough or oh this is good apart from this detail like oh all this show is great shame it's like got this feminist agenda or something um and I think that's like in my sense is that the difference between what's like the sentence of what's the difference between making a show about racists and a racist show versus the same for fascism is that racism is just the condition of our world. Like we can't escape it. It's everywhere. It's just totally inherent within everything we do. But fascism is a much more particular phenomenon. Um, you know, as we, we might identify it in a lot of different places and ways, but you know, it, it is still a very specific thing from which there are escapes. Like there are, you know, not there are ways of being that aren't fascist um and yeah I think that so then that becomes like this weird matter of perception and also also this weird question of like if you're making a show about a totalitarian um you know sexist regime or in the case of the man in the high castle like you know about the a supposed Nazi America you know, what do you do with the fact, you know, if maybe you have loads of near Nazis who then love the show mm -hmm. and how can you presume that presume the angle of your audience and presume whether they are coming from? I think there's this kind of safety of presuming that the audience will identify as the victim, if that makes sense. And then what do you do if they actually kind of radically refuse that and decide to love it and aspire to it and maybe even imitate it? I think it's very similar to to television shows that have pretended to or, or sort of said that they were out to explore sort of quote-unquote toxic masculinity like Breaking Bad right so you always are going to have the fan base that see that guy as a hero yeah and in the specific part of Breaking Bad to me I feel like the show itself was confused over whether or not they saw Walter White as the hero yeah um and but I think you're all, yeah, how does the, how do you sort of um, think about that in, in trying to, not to prevent it, but because um, you're always going to have people who um, are just fucking asshole idiots. But, um, <laughs> but something like Breaking Bad in particular became such a conflicted thing because so many people saw it as, um, as a celebration of, um, you know, the the toxic male, the the cowboy, the renegade, the outsider, yeah. the drug dealer, you know. Um, and so much of our culture is is worshiping that figure. Um, and unless I think you really know what the fuck you're doing, um, you can't really take that figure apart unless you have like all of your sort of um your own shit together. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean I think in the case of breaking bad, it's like much more um yeah, it's kind of ambiguous and and slippery almost and conflicted, internally conflicted within the show, like you're saying. I think what's so funny about like The Handmaid's Tale and this issue is that it's like so ideologically heavy handed in some ways. You know, there's this real presumption that like, of course, no one's going to be fantasizing about living in Gilead. Of course, no one's going to be wishing that they were part of this, you know, totalitarian regime but in fact you know on multiple levels both in this kind of like submerged you know fantasy that I was talking about earlier like but and on a much more kind of open literal level like people are fantasizing about this and it definitely seems like um in, in I guess in some ways a product of political polarization you know it's like all of these moments you have like that that famous screenshot from Bill O'Reilly's show where he's saying something like leftists want to, you know, take away white people's power and like totally transform society or something. And it's like, yeah, yeah. that's it, it, that's it. You've actually perceived exactly right. And, and that screenshot, you know, taken by itself, seen from an alien perspective, would not automatically signify any political position. It would just signify actually quite a simple statement of fact. Um, and so there's this weird, I don't know, I feel like in, in the, in the midst of everyone saying, Oh, like part of this extreme polarization is that 
you know, people aren't really talking, like they don't understand each other. My sense is that, in fact, actually, in many ways, the left and right understand each other in a very clear way, in a way that we didn't necessarily before, um, you know, particularly when it comes to these kinds of, I guess, like, yeah, issues around, particularly around race, I guess, because we're seeing a resurgence in um, very explicit, um, you know, white supremacy and white nationalism. Um, yeah, where actually we, we can really see each other clearly, maybe to some degree. But also then it's like, where do you go from there? If you perceive each, I feel like there's a reluctance to acknowledge this clear perception, because then we have to admit that we're at a kind of impasse that doesn't seem to present any solution. Right. The, the last time that I remember The Handmaid's Tale being sort of culturally um, important was in the years before the um, American invasion of Afghanistan. Um, people were, feminists were sort of using it because the images of women in Afghanistan under the Taliban were coming out. Oh, yeah. And so yeah. people were making like the visual comparison with the cloaks. Um, and then that was being used as an argument for military intervention, <laughs> you know, to, yeah. to rescue the women. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so I do think that this is sort of more, and I don't remember, I don't remember Margaret Atwood's um, involvement at the time, if she was making any sort of statements, um, all in, you know, this time she's been much more sort of present um, with the with the television show. And she said something at some point about, um, you know, there's nothing in the she didn't include anything in the book that wasn't happening somewhere in the world. Yeah, already. Um, anyway, so uh, it does seem like the the stakes are higher than um, than just is this a good TV show or is this a bad TV show? <laughs> Definitely. I mean, Myra Atwood herself has said in multiple interviews that her main inspiration for The Handmaid's Tale, I mean, either sometimes she gives both, but she'll either say the Soviet Union or the Islamic Republic of Iran. What's mm -hmm. so crazy is that, at least to me, like, you know, and several other, you know, critics, is not an idea that I came up with by myself, but that, like, clearly this is a slave narrative. Like, mm -hmm. clearly the... And I, th there was this article, and it was another um, review of A Hamay's Tale on The Guardian, um, where, I let me see, I think I may even um, have it up here. Basically, the writer kind of like, yeah, she gives this long, and she says basically like, oh, Margaret Atwood based the Handmaid's Tale on these historical events. And she says, the Nazis' Lebensborn program, uh, book burnings, religious iconography, state surveillance in China and East Germany. She gives this like really, really long list and doesn't mention slavery and doesn't mention settler colonialism, which is so insane, not only because, you know, I do think that they, you know, have clearly the most similarities um, when we take so of of course, you know, this is a highly technological state. It's set in the future. So like on, on a superficial level, maybe, yes, it's, it's different. But in terms of what's actually happening to the handmaids, their forcible renaming, the ban on literacy, the fact that their children are taken away from them, the forced reproduction, all of this stuff is way, way, way closer to slavery and settler colonialism in North America than any of these examples given. Um, and also, you know, if Myra Atwood is, is very concerned with the notion that this is something that's believable, right? You know, and she has this, she writes this article about the difference between speculative and science fiction, which to be honest to me reads as a slight sort of snobbiness about science fiction, which, uh, you know, a lot of uh, literary serious writers have, you know, perceiving it as a kind of pulp genre or working class genre. But how she defines it is that she says this, that The Handmaid's Tale is speculative fiction because it could really happen. It's realistic. There aren't aliens. There aren't spaceships. Um, and my sense is that, OK, if you're trying to argue that this is something that could really happen in the US, but you're not trying to link it to slavery, in fact, you're totally canceling out racism as a factor and she does this i mean she the novel and the tv show do, do this in very different ways but they both completely cancel out racism 
which is just, I mean, I've never, like, it's such an insane premise that you would have a fundamentalist theocracy, a totalitarian regime in the US that is not primarily racist, let alone that that, racism, let alone that seems to be less racist than our current world. Um, and where do you think, I mean, do you think there's actual blindness to it or do you think that it's strategic Her, her sort of, um, I mean, obviously we can't, um, psychoanalyze Margaret Atwood, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) do you think it's, it's a kind of marketing tool? Because if it, if we use the word, um, slavery, then the whole project kind of reveals itself to be kind of empty, or do you think that she's just that sort of naive about it? Um, I think my speculation would be that it's a kind of a funny combination of this Canadian self-styling and self-image as, you know, a place where racism is not an issue, mm-hmm. particularly where anti-black racism and slavery are not issues, which is obviously in itself false. Um but also, of course, a denial of the fact that, you know, racism and violence and injustice towards uh, Canada's indigenous population is certainly like as severe and terrible as the problems of race in the U.S. So my my, my sense is that it does it, it does come out of a kind of Canadian smugness and naivete. <laughs> That would be my guess. And I mean, I think this is also related to like why she chooses, you know, to to set to make Gilead the the former United States as opposed to put it in Canada, mm-hmm. because I think there's a I, I can't remember exactly. I'm pretty sure, though, she makes the point that it's more believable that this would happen in the US than in Canada. Um, but again, you know, totally abandons the issue of believability. I mean, I don't know, maybe we, we could say it's possible that, you know, as, as takes place in the novel that, you know, people of color are just shipped off to the colonies and never seen again, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't seem, that's maybe like marginally more likely than what happens in the show, which is that they've entered some kind of, you know, post-racial paradise in the midst of their dystopia. (laughs) (laughs) But I think neither are particularly likely, at least from my point of view. (laughs) Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.